And God said, Let us make man in our image. Please notice the our. There is a personal plural pronoun. Plural. In our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. What I want to call attention to here, and I, when you go home from here today, you certainly won't get it all in this particular session, but I want it to have a new meaning to you, and I want you to listen to this. And God said, let us make man in our image. Now, here's the part I want to drive home in these next few sessions. After our likeness. I'm afraid... We live in a day when most evangelicals or fundamental Christians don't have the slightest idea what that means by after our likeness. We'll talk about me and made in the image of God, and we are going to talk plenty about that here in a few minutes, but really this is a twofold image. It's an image of endowment, of personality. But it's also an image of attitude and disposition of heart. Without the latter, man is nothing but a piece of meat. And yet, you almost never hear any teaching on what does this mean after our likeness. That's the part we want, we want to really get to understand. Now then, would you please turn the uh, first one on? No, just press the button. We'll get the first. No. Now then, we read this last night. And by the way, can, is this large enough so you can read it back there in the back of the room? I wonder if we could turn the lights out. I'm uh, better looking in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> Much better, I'm told. <laughs> now, this thing's pretty heavy. <laughs> You know, every time I see somebody carrying a mic, they're always wiggling. <laughs> I can carry it. Robert, I'm glad to see you're playing the piano now with both hands. That's how you know people love you when they kid you. You only kid people you like and you love, don't you? All right, now please follow along. If ever there's anything you want to get to understand, is what you see in front of you right here. The normal course of accountable, self-caused, and I said last night, I wish I had it up there, self-originated action. Where man is allowed to choose between motives presented to the mind to form his own moral character and be sole author of his destiny. Here God says, I have called, you refused, I stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. Now we just read about, he said, let us make man in our image. 
Well, first thing that should hit us is it's not a physical image. God doesn't have a physical image like man. But by the way, dear friends, that's not to say that God does not have essence. God is just not a big old cloud up there floating around. Because it says Jesus sits on his right hand, so if he's got a right hand, he must have a left hand. <laughs> and he told Moses, get thee behind me, so there must be a front. Because he says, I want you to see the manifestation of my rare parts. So uh, just don't think of our great God as a big cloud up there floating around. There's real essence to him. And when the Bible says no man has seen God at any time and no man will see him and live, what that simply means is this. Dear friend, as we are presently constituted and created, we don't have the physical equipment to see him and live. Do you see it now? Don't have the physical equipment. But there's coming a day when we will have the physical equipment to see him. I don't want you to think he's a big cloud up there just floating around. Now, first, image of endowments. We're going to look into that first. And second, the image of attitude and disposition of heart. Because, look, if you're going to govern something, if you're going to fix something, you ought to know something about it. Now, if I told you to go out there in that yard where we've got a tractor and we've got an airplane and we've got a snow plow and we've got a helicopter and we've got a a dirigible, and I say to you, go out and fix the helicopter, you ought to know one from the other, shouldn't you? You know, there's a lot of people trying to fix man up today, and they really don't know anything about man. They know so little about him that I sometimes wonder if they've ever studied at all. It's like I said to you last night, and dear friends, I'm so glad you're here, paying your tuition, by tuition I mean sitting still, and taking a Saturday like this to study about the things of God. See, a lot of people want to be teachers, but they don't want to pay their tuition. And if you're going to teach a dog, you have to know more than the dog. <laughs> All right, now, let's look into this image of endowments. Now, God has an intellect. So when he created man, he put one into us. But by the way, this intellect has many different divisions, such as memory, education, or I mean, and imagination. There's many divisions. There's storage of memory and so forth. Then second, sensibilities. Now, you could put their emotions as a part of that. But sensibilities, we saw last night as phenomenology or the five senses that we have. Then third, the will, and by the way, this one we're going to see later is the greatest mystery of man, that we have this mysterious ability to originate our own actions, apart from any outside or inside influence. We can choose between various alternatives that the mind presents to the will. You get that? That the mind presents to the will to make a choice. Like, for instance, when my children were young, we'd have dinner. And the kids would play around for an hour or two, and then they'd go to bed. Well, then I'd sit down, and I say, I would say, now, what will I study tonight? Will I study uh, theology, electronics, philosophy, or theology? Now, here's what my mind was doing. My mind was like a typewriter there, running these four alternatives past my will. And finally, I said, I will study theology, or I will study this. But it's the will which determines what the mind thinks about. 
If the mind is messed up, you can look a little bit deeper and you can see the will isn't committed the way that it should be. And by the way, these first two are under the law of cause and effect. So there is, strictly speaking, no virtue in the intellect of man nor in our emotions. See, some people can go to a religious concert, give them five or ten, fifteen, twenty bucks in a collection plate, and sit there and have all their spiritual enjoys, listen to this music, and then go right on out and live like a heathen. And they may have shed a few tears there, too, while they were listening to the music. Now, your emotions and your sensibilities are under the law of cause and effect, so therefore, strictly speaking, have no virtue in themselves, but God seeks to get us to think right, so we'll act right. Nobody learns to act right until they learn to think right. Now, but let me show you that your virtue resides in man's will. This is why faith, saving faith, is an act of the will. See, faith is not trying to reach out and embrace something you don't understand. That's not faith. That's magic. <laughs> faith is when you do obey what you understand, then it's faith. Up until that time, it's only a mental ascent. You read Romans 11, that great faith chapter, says, By faith they crossed the Red Sea. By faith Moses left Israel and choosing to endure affliction with the people of God rather than the pleasures of sin for a season. You read, they were sawn asunder. They were stoned. You see, God had given them some insight, some illumination of what he wanted them to do. When they went ahead and did it, then it became faith. Up until that time, it was merely mental assent, not belief. Mental assent. Or they would affirm something. Did you know a Christian cannot believe in the devil? Now, you can affirm, you can agree there is a devil. But as we saw last night, to believe something is to live in accordance with it. How is a Christian going to live in accordance with the devil? See, I admit that a lot of Mac like they're full of it. <laughs> By the way, there's a sure a lot of silly superstition along this line. I used to have a pastor's wife in our fair city of Chicago when we lived there about 30 years ago. I was chairman of the board of deacons in the church, and I'm over at the house one night, and she said to me, Oh, Brother Harry, the devil has been chasing me around this house today for seven hours. <laughs> I said, My dear sister, you must be the most important woman in the whole cockeyed world. <laughs> What do you mean? I said, well, Satan is not, not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He can't even read your mind. He can only be in one place at one time, and all he's got to do is chase you. <laughs> Boy, you must be important. Say, my dear friends, I believe there's more harm done by Christians trying to act super spiritual. And that's what she was doing. Oh, the devil. She's so important. He chases her around for seven hours. You might not agree with me on this, but I don't think Satan ever spent two minutes on me. I don't think I've been that important. See what I'm saying? My, how we can get superstition into our Christianity, and then we just look silly and stupid to the world. If we're going to look that way, let's look that way because of our truth and our life, not because of some silly superstition. Or that we want them to think that we're a pretty holy joke, you know, that we got a stranglehold on God and we got a hotline to heaven. 
you know, the way you can tell those kind of people is they're always going around saying, God told me. God told me. Then when it doesn't get done, who gets a black eye? God. You're going to find the more spiritually immature people are, the more they say, God told me. Look out when you start talking like that. Well, that's not to say that he will not reveal things to you. He sure will. But he sure won't do it if you stay away from that Bible. So then you learn to say it is written instead of God told me. (laughs) You get that? Now then, look at the fourth one there. Conscience, the built-in alarm clock. By the way, I want to take that word apart, conscience. Last part of it, we all know what that means. Science, it means knowledge. And con, that's a dirty word, you know. (laughs) You know what that means? It means self. (laughs) Self. Self. Otherwise, it's self-knowledge. Now, a conscience is supposed to be a wonderful endowment. It's, and it's like an alarm clock. If you will obey it, get up and get to work instead of laying in bed and letting the thing go off and on and you pushing the snooze button and going on back and then the thing becomes a pain in the neck, doesn't it? <laughs> see, see a conscience is supposed to commend you when you do what is right. But it also can become like a... Well, as the Bible says, a conscience seared with a hot iron. Now, that means you can take my arm, my bare arm, and put a hot iron on it. If you put a pin in my arm today, I'll jump. But you give me a third-degree burn a year, and I can stick a pin in there, let it stick up, and I won't even feel it. Why? It's totally insensitive. If you keep sinning against your conscience, keep on doing it, keep on doing it, after a while, it won't bother you at all. And by the way, this is why when some people get converted to Christ, it takes about 18 months to reconstitute a reliable conscience in them. And you better get into the Word. I don't know any other way to do it. Get your mind immersed in that. Then look at the bottom one there. The ability to perceive various relationships. Now, as you said here this morning, you can perceive personal relationships with the other people around you, the family relationships, business relationships, social relationships, civil relationships. That's why you pay your taxes, isn't it? The civil relationship. By the way, animals cannot perceive those kind of relationships. I believe I could write a book that thick on the difference between animals and man. And when any teacher, a public school teacher, taught my daughters they were an animal, they got a visit from Uncle Harry. <laughs> and boy, when I got done with them, I say, now you may keep on teaching it, but you're going to have to crawl over your ignorance to do it. Because <laughs> from this time on, I'm going to teach you some of the differences. I said, do you know any unified body of knowledge in this world that was collected, collated, and distributed by animals? Do you have anything in your kitchen, ladies, that makes your life, those utensils, a little better? Have you got an electric toaster designed, developed, manufactured, marketed by an animal? Of course you don't. There's no implement. There's nothing in this world that has ever been done as worthwhile for mankind ever developed by animals. Isn't that right? And if you want your kids to act like monkeys, you let teachers teach them they are an animal. And it won't be long. Well, listen, we're a little lower than the angels and a million miles higher than animals. And we shouldn't let the secular world get along with calling man an animal. We shouldn't let them get away with it. So we have the ability to perceive various relationships. 
which animals don't. Do you know when a sow has about 16 little piglets, you know the first thing you better do with those little piglets? Or with her? What? Remove them. Get them out of there. You know why? One of two things. She'll either eat them or lay on them. How's that for a family relationship? <laughs> Somebody said to me one time, which is, the, uh, which is the animal the greatest friend of man, the dog or the horse? I said, neither one. What? I said, a yeah, male alligator. Crazy way you say that. I said, the female alligator lays a hundred eggs. And the male comes along each 99 of them, one for the male alligator, you'd be up to your ears and alligators in this world. <laughs> hey, Christians aren't supposed to smile and laugh, didn't you know that? We're supposed to have long faces like we lost our dog or something. Or we step on our lower lip. Oh, yes, I think, I think Christians have the most fun of anybody in the world. I even think Swedes have as much fun as people. <laughs> now, I, I want to call your attention, my dear friends, that we could spend great time on any one of these, but the third one down, the will, there's the greatest mystery of man. Now, please notice this phrase. This was the phrase 100 and 200 years ago that made our country great. But by the way, the preachers of today haven't even heard of it. Neither have the psychologists. And I'm hoping Monday afternoon to spend two to four hours with one of the top six intellectuals in the United States. And the reason, one of the main reasons I'm going to get together with him, I'm going to try to pound this concept into his head. If he can get a hold of this one and two or three more, boy, the effect this man can have on our country. Because, friends, our country today is like Israel was in Isaiah's time when he said, my people are perishing for a lack of knowledge. We never had so many colleges. We got 3,500 colleges. We never had so many colleges and so little intelligence. And I'm afraid many of the people, we have just plain educated them away from their common sense. All right, now, the incipiency of the will is man's ability to originate his own actions apart from any outside or inside influence. Now, my dear friends, I'm going to back up just a little bit. When I told you that the sensibilities of man, the emotions, and the intellect of man are under the law of cause and effect. I want to give you a good illustration of this so you can see why virtue has to reside in man's will. It says in the Bible, he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Not he that knoweth, but he that doeth. Of course, you've got to know it before you can do it. But just knowing it doesn't mean it enough. Now, I'll give you an illustration of this. Back about the turn of the century, down in Kentucky... I can't remember whether it was Kentucky or southern Indiana. But the Baptists were having a big meeting on a very, very warm Sunday afternoon. And there were several thousand there. So this bishop had a message on his heart that God had laid on him very heavily. He knew the importance of it. He, he was dying to get the truth of it across to these people. But as it came about time for him to speak, he looked out there and the women had fans and and they're fanning themselves, and you know, with this extra exertion, they're getting warmer. And they're wiping themselves off with handkerchiefs. And he says, dear God, how am I going to get this truth across to them? When look at they're getting warmer by the minute. So he sat there, and he did a little praying, a little thinking, and looked back at what he knew. So here's what he did. He stood up. 
And he began to talk about the North Pole and the Arctic Circle. And he painted the word pictures of how it was up there, about how cold and everything. And pretty soon he's up there standing like this, you know. And he's painting this, he did this for five minutes, you know. Every fan in that place stopped. Every handkerchief was put away. Now he had them feeling cold. Then he went ahead and preached. <laughs> By the way, do you think they had chosen to stop fanning themselves? Chosen to put their hankies away? No. He laid down the causation. He got the effect, didn't he? Was there anything virtuous in it? Not, not on their part. This is why, friends, when we can go to concerts and things and we can get ourselves all torn up inside emotionally, if we don't go out and do what God wants us to do, we'd have been better off not to heard that. Same thing is true about preaching. Or some people on their Sunday morning service, you know some churches, when they get to the end, they begin cranking you up so you'll go on an emotional binge. <laughs> if we don't go from there and put these things into practice, we'd been better off not to have been there. Now then, here's what I consider to be the biggest mystery of man, man's will. And this is... Our mysterious ability, having been made in the image of God, we can originate our own actions apart from any outside or inside influence. We can say no to a good influence or we can say yes to it. We can say no to a bad influence, we can say yes to it. You can be raised by the most godly parents in the world and when you get 18 to 21, go right on out and throw it away. That's not your parents' fault. And by the way, there's a lot of parents in this world that have a false guilt today. When they see the way their kids are and they say, oh God, where did I fail? Oh, I want to tell you, many of them didn't fail anywhere. Now that's what we call in psychology a guilt of scrupulosity. That's having a guilt over something you shouldn't have a guilt over. Now I admit very little of the guilts today are scrupulosity kind. But there are such things as guilts of scrupulosity. And that, again, I want to say, is having a guilt over something that you shouldn't have a guilt over. Now, let me give you an example of the incipiency of the will. Now, the incipiency of the will is a noumenal concept. Now, noumenal, we're going to see here, means it cannot be grasped, measured, or comprehended by the senses. Get that measured part? Now we've gotten away from phenomenology, haven't we? We're getting above it now where theology takes over. Neumono means that of and in itself it is above the grasp of science. Neumono means, and I say it again, cannot be grasped measured or comprehended by the census. Now, I want to... Uh, just turn it off for a moment. Now, I want to give you an example of this. Just turn the picture off. Part. In Mark 6, the first six verses, here's Jesus. He has gone to his hometown to preach. And it says he could do almost no miracles there because of their unbelief. He just did a few. And by the way, his own brothers and sisters were there, and I don't know whether you know it or not, but Jesus had four half-brothers and he had two half-sisters. I one time lost a job in a very Catholic company for saying that. 
And I don't think that takes a thing away from the Virgin Mary. I think that makes a better wife out of her than their idea. <laughs> She's the way they say she was. She was the poorest wife that ever came down to Jerusalem Pike. <laughs> I'm glad some of them get what I'm talking about. <laughs> Even if it's a little late. <laughs> We'd say in Indiana some come by slow freight, you know. <laughs> Now, Jesus had four half-brothers, James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon. He had two sisters. Now then, here he was, and he's preaching, and he's teaching, and then here is one of the most pathetic verses in the Bible, Mark 6, 6. Write this down in here, Mark 6, 6. This will save you, my dear friends, from, from all kinds of sociological foolishness that they're covering our earth with today says, Jesus marveled at their unbelief. Now, if you read the same portion, read it synoptically, and you read it in Matthew 17, it says that Jesus' brothers and sisters were offended at him. You see, they never believed in Jesus until... And then only one or two. The book of James is written by James, the Lord's brother. But he didn't even believe until after the resurrection. Now, but these others, insofar as we know, they never did believe. Now, I want you to notice the sociology of this situation. The sociologists say that your heredity, your environment, and your training will determine your destiny. You get that? Your environment, your heredity, and your training will determine your destiny. And communists would even tell you, you have no choice in your destiny. We, the state, will determine your destiny. That's really not much different than what John Calvin said. John Calvin says you have no choice in your destiny. God, by unconditional election, he will determine your destiny. And so both of them relieve man of his responsibility and his accountability. It's one Satan coming in the realm of theology and the other in the realm of political science, if you can call that political science. We'll call it political something or other, but it's not science. By no stretch of any imagination, if you really understand what science is. Now then, they say that your environment, your training, your heredity will determine your destiny. Now, wait a minute here. Here was James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon, Jesus' brothers, and the two sisters. They were offended. They reject him. Now, I want you to notice the heredity here. Joseph and Mary, where in the beat that in heredity? Never did people have such... A good lineage is that upon this earth. All right, how about environment? They're raised in a home with Jesus, Joseph, and Mary. How's that for environment? Where in heaven's name are you going to beat that? And by the way, Joseph, to me, was every bit as holy, and if not more so, than dear Mary. Now, I'm not taking anything away from Mary. I believe she really was a virgin until... And it says in Matthew 1, the last verse of Matthew 1, that Joseph knew her not till the, after the firstborn son. If it wasn't that way, then you can give her back to the Indians. But, now, notice this. These four brothers, two half-sisters, the heredity, Joseph and Mary. Environment, raised with Jesus in the same home. Training, taught by Jesus. If Jesus hadn't taught his brother's truth, he'd have sinned. 
He would have sinned. You know what they said? We don't want it. We don't want it. Now, it says it there in your book, Mark 6, 6, Jesus marveled at their unbelief. You see, they may have had a thousand reasons for rejecting Christ, but not one that was valid. They may have had a thousand reasons for rejecting Christ, but not one causation. You get that? Not one causation. What do you think this is doing to the way sociologists now teach? That your environment, your heredity, and your training will determine your destiny, and you have no choice in your destiny. Well, the Bible teaches the exact opposite. The exact opposite. Now, if it's all predetermined, or determined, or predestinated, is there anything for Jesus there to marvel at? Or to be astonished at? I believe if gestures were recorded in the Bible, I think when Jesus marveled, I think he scratched his head. <laughs> because here's, here's what he's marveling at. Now, look at the evidence they've rejected. I lived an absolute holy life in front of them, and my daddy, Joseph, my earthly daddy, what a godly man, and my mother, Mary, what a precious Christian woman she was, and they say they don't want this. Now, do you see why he marveled? Boy, did he marvel. Now, if you think about what I'm saying, I'm shooting for you all sociology and political science right out of the saddle. And I'll show you that a little bit later. Well, I wonder if you would agree with me in these statements. That which is free cannot be caused or it isn't free. Would you agree? Sure. That which is free is accountable. And that which is free is responsible, providing it is a sentient being. Now, that a sentient being is one who can reason between right and wrong. God doesn't hold a retarded boy and girl or feeble-minded responsible like he does us. He is so reasonable. Never find God being arbitrary or unreasonable. All his ways are righteous. So I think we would agree with that. Now, my friends, before we go much further, I must take a word and show what it means. And that is the word death. Death means separated from or loosed from. There are three kinds of death in the scriptures. And we are forever mixing them all up. Boy, do we mix them up. Somebody does something wrong, they'll say, and they get killed, they'll say, see, the wages of sin is death. And they made it physical death, and that's not what it means at all. All right, now, the word death means separated from or loosed from. First kind we find in the scriptures is spiritual death, then physical, and then dead to sin. Now, you see, God is so right and so reasonable, he created man. And he had the obligation to be man's moral governor, didn't he? Because man has the dire necessity to be governed. So, he didn't give them a system of law in the garden. He'd already given them something that's wonderful. But, and here's what it was. He designed into the very centermost part of man's being a right attitude and disposition of heart that dictated to them how they ought to act and react under every given situation. If you have that, you don't need laws. Now, just to see if they'd let God be God and man be man, let him be the moral governor of the universe, and let them be in happy submission to them, 
to him. He gave them, get this, dear friends, one little teeny weeny law. Now, that's pretty lenient, isn't it? Half a law. He gave them one. That's all. Just one. These people that make the God of the Old Testament out to be hard and burdensome and rigid and different than the God in the New Testament, they just don't know the God of either one. He says, I'm the Lord. I change not. And that doesn't mean he never changed his mind. He's talking about changing his character. That's what it's talking about. Now then, just to see if they let God be God and man be man, he gave them one little teeny-weeny moral law, and here's what it was. There's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat thereof, for the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And there it is, right up there, spiritual death. Thou shalt surely be separated from me. That's what he's saying. And when you rebel against me, you're saying to me, you don't want me to be the God of your life. You want to be the God of your own life. That's what they're saying. Now then, you never have a law, my dear friends, unless you have sanctions. A law without sanctions is not law, it's mere advice. But God, when he gives laws, they're not advice. There may be good advice entailed and contained in them, but no, 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 they're absolutely needed. So, he gave them sanctions. Now, here were the sanctions. Now, please notice, if I was giving you a test on this, 90% of you would miss it. I would say to you in the, in the test, what were the sanctions connected with the first law in the garden? And here's what they were. Life for obedience, right? They could have stayed in this right and wonderful relationship. Life. All right? If they sinned against God, he said, the soul that sinned it shall die. And the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So, that would be the penalty connected with this. And so, they would be separated from God. They'd be separated from Him. Now, we don't know how long they were in the garden before they rebelled against God. We don't know. So, we do know that Satan came down and Satan deceived Eve. By the way, men, don't tell women's lib about this. But she was deceived. Adam wasn't. Adam's sin was a thousand times worse than hers. Ah. But please don't tell Gloria Steinem I said that. <laughs> now, Satan comes along like he usually does, and he gives us half-truths. And, you know, we poor mortals, when somebody gives us a half-truth, we almost always get a hold of the wrong half. <laughs> He said, go ahead and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Your eyes will be open. You shall not surely die. There was some truth there. Their eyes were open. Oh, now God came down in the cool of the evening, as he usually did, to have fellowship. To have fellowship. God enjoyed his creation. God enjoyed them, just like you enjoy being with your children. But not if they're trying to kill you. And they're disobedient. No, you don't enjoy that. The reason you don't is because you're made in the image of God. So he comes down to have fellowship with them in the cool of the evening. He said, Adam. See, Adam ascended. He says, Adam, where art thou? It doesn't mean that God, this is a lesson in omniscience, and God's got a white cane he's tapping around here. 
Adam, where art thou? No, no, you know what this means when he says, Adam, where art thou? Adam, you sinned against me, and Adam, I believe I got an explanation coming here. What did you find wrong with me and my righteous government over you? Come on, Adam. I've got an explanation. This is, this is one of the most pathetic statements in the whole Bible when he says, Adam, where art thou? Here's his perfect creation without one intelligent reason in the whole universe to rebel against a just and a holy and a loving and a tender-hearted and powerful God. Come on, Adam. I've got an explanation coming. And by the way, God's going to ask every one of us someday, Hey, Harry, where art thou? And I'm going to have to stand in front of him and give an explanation for every sin I ever committed. And so are you. So are you. I think he's going to say, hey, what did you find wrong with me? Where did I fail? Where did I fail? And you find he asked this in the Bible sometimes. So, the second kind of death there is a physical death. It says that he gave up the ghost. Now, that doesn't mean that no more spirit, no more body. It just means the spirit left the body goes to its place, and the body stays here. They're just not within the same proximity. That's physical death. Now look at the next one. This is what Christians are supposed to be. Dead to sin. All right, now I want you to tell me, by looking at that definition up there at the top, when you say a Christian is supposed to be dead to sin, now you define it for me and leave out the word death. Somebody that I can hear. Most of you are speaking slightly below a whisper. <laughs> That's right. The Christian is separated from sin. He's loose from it, right? Yeah. Jesus came to set the prisoners what? Free. Free. Why, you start talking like that today, they'll call you a Pharisee. <laughs> but that's just plain Christian talk, isn't it? And Christian commitment and Christian conduct. He came to set the prisoners free, it says in Luke 4. I went to a jail one time, eight Monday nights in a row, and I taught them moral government. The last time I went, I taught them on the atonement, and it was just before Christmas, and I gave an invitation. I said, how many of you men in here would like to really turn from your sin and stop this stupidness, get right with God and Jesus Christ and be saved tonight and go on and live the way you're designed to live? I said, put up your hand. Every one of them in there did. All right, let's get down. Let's pray. And I told him, now I said, when you get out of here, get away from these hopheads and dummies you've been running around with, see? Because you can't lay down with dogs and get up without fleas. <laughs> Isn't that pretty good advice? That's sorry. Neither can you run with goats six days a week and smell like a sheep on Sunday. So I said, now get away from these, these dummies and dopes and hopheads, and that's what they are. They're just plain stupid jerks. And if you're living right with God, you're not wanting to take dope and escape reality. You're wanting to live in reality and change it for good. Isn't that right? We're not trying to escape anything. Well, let me tell you, eight months later, that sheriff called me, and he said, Brother Harry, are you, are you busy Sunday afternoon, October the 8th? I said, I don't know. Let me look at my calendar. And by the way, this fellow had gotten straightened out on moral government, Brother Bob, in a Sunday school class, and then God promoting to be the sheriff of that, of those counties. And boy, they really knew they had something on their hands then. <laughs> well, now, here he's got a jail full of these young people, and at least there's one improvement in criminology in our day. They don't take those young men and put them in 
if they got a less than a year sentence, they don't take them and send them to a uh, what we call a big house, a state penitentiary, even a reformatory. They try to keep them in a the local jail so the preachers and their loved ones can come and see them and not get in with so hardened a criminal. So, boy, did he have them in there like flies. So I taught a moral government. All these fellows in there want to get saved. Well, eight months later, he calls me and said, Would you come down and speak for us in the jail on October the 8th, Sunday afternoon, 2 o'clock? I said, What's the occasion? He said, You remember all those guys who got saved? And you told them what to do? Yeah, well, they kept in touch with each other, but not their old buddies. And they've all saved up their money, and they got the commissioners here of this county to allow them to build a chapel onto the jail. And they want you to come and preach the dedication service. There's moral government teaching for it. So you know what I did? I walked in that place. It was packed. And I preached on Jesus came to set the prisoners free. <laughs> and I said, there's more people in jail today in this city, in a jailhouse of sin, than there are in here. Amen. Now we've got to go after them. They're in a jailhouse of sin. And that's what it means when he says, now, wait a minute. I was in jail and you visited me not. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. The real meaning is there, the spiritual thing. The spiritual thing. You didn't do it. If you're right with me, you would have done it. So, now, uh, look at the first one. Oh, let's see. Now, I'm going to quote you some verses. I'm going to give you a little test and see if you really understood what we've got up there and what we've been saying. Now, I want you to tell me what kind of death this is. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Set not your affections on things above, but set your affections on those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. That's the sin. That's right. The wages of sin is... What kind of death is that? All right, now, how about this one? John 5, 24. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, he that heareth my words and believeth on me shall not come into condemnation, but shall pass from death unto. What kind of death is he talking about? Then? Spiritual death. That's right. Now then, I want you to get this and we'll see if you really got it. Paul said, Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Let me quote again. Awake thou that sleepest, If he's spiritual, he's dead. You're going to preach to him? Huh? Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Now then, I want you to tell me. That's your right. That's spiritual death. I want you to tell me now, what are the characteristics of a man that is spiritually dead? He says, awake thou that sleepest. What's he, what's he inferring here? That the spiritually dead can what? He can hear. That's right. Furthermore, he can reason, can't he? And arise from the dead. He's, he can put the act of the will here and make a move toward God. But did you know St. Augustine messed up practically the most of the educated world by saying, and by the way, I heard Billy Graham use this illustration one time. I sat on a platform with him at went on a lake. And he said, you go and say people out there, you're just like this. We'll go over here to the funeral parlor and we'll bring in a... <laughs> My wife would say a stiff. <laughs> 
So we, I asked him, now can this man in this casket, can he wash his face? He says, no, he's dead. Can he comb his hair? No, he's dead. Can he put on a new suit? No, he's dead. That's the way you people out there are out there that are unsaved. You're dead. Can you tell me what's wrong with that illustration? He couldn't have had a worse one. That's right. He was confusing physical death with spirit. He says, i got to go bury my Aunt Hester or, or somebody. You know, he's probably only been dead two weeks. See? I got Jesus said, no, 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 young man. And here's what he's saying. This is so important. This is so serious to get to serve our great God. And the needs of this world are so great. I don't want any excuses, alibis, or delays. Come on. Serve the Lord now. Now, that's what he means when he says, let the dead bury the dead. Sometimes what he says and what he means, the difference there is what we call understanding, isn't it? <laughs> Another word for it is that, that the Spirit of God gives you illumination. That's understand. See, the Blessed Bible is the revelation of God, but to know what it means, that's illumination. That's understanding. That's understanding. And that's what we want to do today. We want to specialize here today in understanding. Not just reading, not just knowing, but understanding. So, let the dead bury the dead. Now, please notice this. I said it to you, but here it is up here. Man was created with the right attitude and disposition of heart that dictated to him how he ought to act. And react in every situation. But when they sinned against God and were separated from God, they lost that right attitude and disposition of heart. They lost it. And the further man got from the garden, the more they lost it. So one day God said to Moses, Moses, come on up here. We'll just put her down in writing how they ought to act. Now, and so he came down from there with the Ten Commandments. And dear friends, the Ten Commandments did not create our obligation to God or to one another. They merely define what they always had been and what they always will be. Amen. But he was so gracious, he put them down in writing for us. And this afternoon, we'll take up right here where we've left off. Brother Bob, would you dismiss us while we go to lunch? Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit. The revelation and the Thank you for that illumination, Father, and Peter, you want to tell them what time they back? Now, friends, I put that one back up there for just one particular reason. And that reason is, many of us, and I know I have been more guilty of this perhaps than anybody in the room, sometimes we take the Bible too literally. Now, let me give you a real good illustration of this. 
Now, somebody tell me what that bottom one, what that is saying. Now, you, you, and you did it correct for me before. Somebody tell me. Left the spiritually dead. Okay, now, if you take that literally, then, a mortician... would have to be an unsaved person, wouldn't he? You see what you see what I'm saying? Well, you know that can't be right. But if you take that literal, you'd have it so when a man gets saved, he couldn't be a mortician anymore. Couldn't be a <laughs> then you get like the old boy, 95 years old, he's walking by the funeral parlor and stopped and talked to the guy. Finally, he went on. He said, where are you going? The owner said. He said, I'm going home. No... Mortician said, do you think it's worth the trouble? <laughs> now, let's see that next one. Now then, my dear friends, we're going to begin to look into where moral law fits in to the kingdom of God and the moral government of God. You recall this morning I said that when God created Adam and Eve, he created into the very centermost part of their being a right attitude and disposition of heart that dictated to them how they ought to act and react under every given situation. You see, he didn't need to give them at that particular time, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's ass or his manservant. There wasn't anybody else. See? But he had created into the very centermost part of man's being this right attitude and disposition of heart that enlightened him and dictated to him how he ought to act and react under every given situation. Now, my dear friends, when a person gets, create, gets converted to Jesus Christ, we find, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new what? Creature. New creature. And you could say new creation. And what God begins right there is to recreate that right attitude and disposition of heart that Adam and Eve lost when they sinned against our great God. And no man will ever get into God's heaven without it, because, my friends, he would be out of place in heaven. I was lecturing in the Aeronautical Sciences Building in Montreal, Canada, about 20 years ago, and I'd been sitting under finished stuff about four or five years, and I witnessed to them. As the meeting was over, four fellows came down in the main aisle like a corporal's guard coming at me, and they said to me, Mr. Con, old chap, will you enjoy the, the lecture but that part there, you start out about Jesus. Did you know that the Privy Council of the Anglican Church has decided there is no hell? I said, is that right? I don't know what privy means up here, but where I come from. <laughs> and they got to laughing, too, and they said, that's what we think of it, too. I said, well, gentlemen... Twenty-three times in the scriptures, God has the word hell. Now, I think I ought to listen to God, not the privy council of the Anglican Church. But I said, now, I want to tell you. Every time I hear somebody say there is no hell, I know that that person, unless there is a, a radical change in his life takes place, he's going to stand in front of God on Judgment Day and ask God, a merciful God, to send him to hell. Now, I'll show you. I'll explain that. You see, my dear friends, how do you get any nature? 
You know, many of you know that I don't believe, and Penny didn't believe, that you're born with a sinful nature. You acquire it. Because you watch your thoughts, because your thoughts become acts. Isn't that right? Watch your acts. Your acts determine habits. Watch your habits. Your habits determine nature. And watch your nature. Your nature determines character. And watch your character because that determines destiny. So where was nature there? About right in the middle, wasn't it? How could you be born with a moral nature when you're only a physical little creature there? See? Now then, nature is developed. And we read in the scriptures about the Christians to take on the divine nature of Christ. Well, when you're born again by his spirit, you begin to act like Jesus. And you act like that enough, it becomes your what? Your nature. Now, I know people that go to church on Sunday morning, but if that preacher preaches an hour, he'll be talking to himself. You know, they want enough religion to get to heaven, but not enough to change their lifestyle. Isn't that right? Their Christianity to them is an imposition in a life of selfishness. It's not an imposition in our life. It is our life. It is our We don't give God our time. Our time is his. All right, but many people go to church on Sunday morning. And they're watch winders, you know. <laughs> if you ever preach as much as I have. I don't mind them doing this, but I'll tell you what I don't like is when they go like this. <laughs> and when I see some guy doing that, I say, oh, don't watch your watch, buddy. Watch your calendar when I preach. Because <laughs> I get so blessed with the truth of God, I'm not going to stop for two hours. Yeah. Yeah, three times in my ministry, I've had churches ask me to come and spend one Sunday each on each one of the commandments. Boy, when you get into those and God begins to give you insight in them, I have a hard time stopping under an hour and a half. And then the people say, why'd you stop? Now, the point I want to say, the average church member, though, tomorrow, he's going to want a 20-minute massage. <laughs> now, my dear friend, when you need an appendectomy, don't take an aspirin. Isn't that right? See, we preachers and we say, oh, when we're supposed to be heart surgeons, not masseurs. <laughs> See? We got a lot today that want them like they wanted in Isaiah's day. They said, prophesy unto us smooth things. <laughs> smooth things. Don't bother us. You know, it's smooth. Well, my dear friends, you take the people that that's all they want is a little 20-minute treatment on Sunday morning. They get in front of God on Judgment Day. Do you think they're going to have the divine nature of Christ? No, they're going to get there. The great white throne judgment isn't going to be held in hell. And they're going to get a peek into heaven. And they're going to see their friends of a thousand and one things we'll be doing up there. The main thing we'll be doing is worship. Now, some of you are not going to really want to go to heaven if you really knew you were going to get a job there. <laughs> yeah, we're going to do a thousand and one things. I think if it's big enough, the Lord will let me learn to play a piano. Maybe sing. See, when I sing, they say, lock the doors, don't let anybody out. <laughs> and maybe they'll really teach me how up there. But the point I want to say is, the unsaved, when he stands in front of God on Judgment Day, will get a peek into heaven and see that the main thing we're doing is worshiping. Worshiping the Lord and having sweet fellowship one with another. Now, by the way, they couldn't take an hour of it down here on Sunday morning. Now, do you think there's some change that has taken place in him when he stands there? Didn't want two hours. 
Well, let me tell you something. To those kind of people, heaven will be hell. And they'll ask God to send them to hell because hell will be less torment than heaven would be. There's the foundation for the justice of eternal punishment. You get that? That puts hell in a little bit different light, doesn't it? And a just and a holy God will let the smoke of their torment descend to his nostrils all for eternity because they're happier in hell than they would be in heaven because they don't have the nature for it. Boy, put that one in your pipe and smoke it. Yes, sir. Boy, I've laid that one on some congregations. Yes, sir, if you're not happy in the service of the Lord here, boy, you'd be a square peg in a round hole up there. Yes, sir. So there's only one place you can get the divine nature of Christ. You know, in the Proverbs it says at the end, let the filthy be filthy still, and the unrighteous be righteous, unrighteous still, but let the holy be holy still, and the righteous be righteous still. You're either going to be holy and righteous while you're living, or you never will be when you're dead. Amen. Make no mistake about it. Only one place in all the universe that you can ever acquire the divine nature of Christ is here. Now, it all starts with conversion, and you get that attitude of heart straightened out. And that's what he begins to recreate within you. Well, now, they had lost that when they sinned against our great and just and merciful and tender-hearted God. And the further man got from the garden, the more they lost it. So one day, God said to Moses, Moses, just come on up here. We'll put her down in writing. And Moses went and talked it over with the Israelites and said, I have an invitation from God to come up on Sinai. What do you think? And here's a verse that thrills me, and I wish the Bible believers today knew this about God and what the Jews knew without even the Bible to read. Listen to this. Deuteronomy 5.27. You don't need to look it up now. Just write it down. I'll quote it to you. It won't be perfect, but I'll quote it to you. Now, Moses, go near and hear all that the Lord our God shall say unto thee, and we will hear it and do it. Pray. They knew God was so right, so reasonable, so wonderful, he'd never command them to do anything they couldn't do and that it wouldn't be good for them to do. They never said, oh, we can't obey him, we can't obey him. Like, Have you ever heard people say, boy, I'm glad I'm under grace and not under law. Oh, boy, that old law back there, isn't that terrible? You know, as if you got a different God in the New Testament and you had no Old Testament. Let me tell you, if ever there was a time for the Jews to plead inability, you know what I mean by when I say to plead inability? That means to say you couldn't obey God or man can't obey. The Jews never did claim that. Only some of these Bible believers have been to some Bible schools claim that. <laughs> I said some Bible schools. They said, Moses, go down near and hear all that the Lord our God shall say unto thee, and we will hear it and do it. And it would be for their good always, we read in the scriptures. Now then, he comes down from Sinai with the moral law. And he finds them, got this golden calf up there, right? They're worshiping that. And by the way, you know what he did with that golden calf? He ground it up. And he made those Jews eat that gold and has been in them ever since. <laughs> they said, Moses, he said, Moses, stand aside. 
We're going to, I'm going to mop up the earth with these stiff-necked Jews and I'm going to make a new nation out of you. It's a good thing he didn't say that to some of us. We just said, go ahead, Lord, now you got something to work with. <laughs> but now Moses was of all men most humble. What a wonderful thing to have said about you, huh? You know why he was? He was the best educated man of his day. And real education doesn't puff up your head. It lets the air out of the balloon. <laughs> Moses was really the best educated man of his day. No doubt about it. He was educated to be the Pharaoh. Before he was 40, he was head of all the armies of Israel. And I could even tell you about his first marriage back there. And how that later there was a divorce. And he later married a uh, Zipporah. The daughter there, uh, the Midianite. But the point I want to say is, when he came down from Sinai, the second time, now here's the first four of the commandments on one tablet. Those are between ourselves and God. And the last six are horizontal between one another. Now, the Ten Commandments, my dear friends, did not create our obligation to God or to one another. It merely defined what they always had been and they always will be. We'll have them in heaven. We'll have them. If they bother you here, hoo-hoo, look out. <laughs> they bother you here. And I think some of those are so sweet when he told me to honor my father and my mother. I can't think of anything nicer that my God ever asked me to do than that. Some of you may say, oh, but you don't know my old man. <laughs> well, I do know this, that love transforms its object. You get that? Loved. Boy, my daddy was tougher than a quarter steak. <laughs> when I came home from New York City with the glory of God in my little ignorant soul, I said, Oh God, I'm going to love my daddy. I'm going to witness to him if he kills me. And I want to tell you something. You know what I did? I got a new daddy out of it. He really hadn't changed. It was me. <laughs> You see what I mean? I began to show him the love of Christ. I began to appreciate him then. A lot more than I ever did before. I got a brand new daddy. I don't know. Boy, hadn't changed a bit. Isn't that wonderful? When you begin to see things in people as God sees it. Then I would thank him for many of the things. How he put me to work when I was 13 years old. Working like a man in, the, in my dad's shop. And how he'd teach me and train me. And he'd tear down all the things on the walls, all the engineering charts. And he said, son, uh, you'll learn to lean on these as a crutch. And I'm going to show you how to work them in your head. So if you work somewhere else and they don't have them, it won't mean anything. You can go ahead and do it. You'll be the only guy in the place that can do it. Boy, wasn't that some training? Wasn't that some training? That's a dad that loves his kids. And he said, you may go to college, fine. But you're going to learn to trade first. So you'll appreciate those guys that do work with their hands. And you'll find that money doesn't grow on trees, especially my trees. <laughs> Boy, did he teach me how to work. He never taught me how to like it, but he taught me how to work. That's a wonderful thing. Now, we get back right back here. So he gives us a moral law. Now, I think you're having trouble reading that back there, but up there at the top it says law. And underneath it in that... Rectangle is the word responsibilities. Now, the responsibilities you have in this life are no different than the moral laws that you have in this life. You never have laws without sanctions or consequences. 
A law without sanctions, my friends, is not law at all. It's just advice. But today we seem to think that the Ten Commandments are just pretty good old country advice. I'm here to tell you they're not advice. They are laws, and they have sanctions inseparably connected with them, and there are two kinds of sanctions. There are primary and there are secondary. Now, let me give you an example. Here's a man tonight. He's going to go out. He's going to cheat on his wife. He's going to have fun for five or ten minutes. Oh, he likes that consequences. But in about a week or two, he's going to get some more consequences. There's going to take a doctor to take care of, which he may have the rest of his life, but if he doesn't repent of it, he'll have the consequences all through eternity, isn't it? See, the thing we don't seem to teach people today is that when we choose an act, we are also choosing the consequences inseparably connected with that act. Boy, you better teach that to your kids. Because if you don't, the schools aren't. The churches aren't. You better do it yourself. Now, my dear friends, you can see then from this particular slide that whatsoever a man sows, let's say it's disobedient, that shall he reap. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he reap. Now, in psychology, that's called the natural law of consequences. My dear friends, there's a book this thick. It's called Monroe's Encyclopedia of Educational Research, and I've been through the whole thing on discipline. And they say, and I have to agree with it, that we have all the problems in our schools with discipline. And by the way, did you know that year before last, and his worst last year, we had 70,000 teachers in the United States beaten up in the schoolroom. You get that? 70,000? But I think a lot of that's because the kids got stupid parents. You know, the kids are usually a second edition of the parents. You usually look at a kid and you see a lot of his mom and daddy in them, isn't that right? Now, I thank the Lord. My dad says, son, when you get a Lincoln in school, when you get home, you get a real one. <laughs> I want you to know when I got one in school, he never heard about it. <laughs> Because when he gave you a licking, you wouldn't be dead, but you'd wish you were. <laughs> now, I'm thankful that I had a dad. He backed up the school teacher. You see what I mean? But these ignoramuses we got running around today, when their little darlings uh, get spanked, they want to throw the teacher in jail. No, they ought to put the parents in the insane asylum for being feeble-minded. No, I don't believe in beatings. I believe in spankings. Spanking. I don't believe in a beating at all. But the Bible's very plain. Now, they say... In Monroe's Encyclopedia of Educational Research, we have all these problems in our schools with discipline because we haven't taught this to our kids before they're six years of age. And you turn them loose on the public. Next month, I'm going to be lecturing at Purdue University. I'm going to do the same thing as I did at a big seminar in the East recently on ethics. And I say, now, business is a series of problems. If you're afraid of problems, you don't belong in business. You ought to go get a job teaching school, and then you get 32 little problems that's never been spanked. <laughs> and you will think you're a lion tamer. <laughs> Either that or you'll wish you were. Now, you see this right there? That's the natural law of consequence. But that also happens to be the way the moral government of God works. Now, I want you to notice there's something missing from this, which is going to be on the next slide. Look at this. See something there now? Look what we see. Now, you see, dear friends, 
When a man's mind begins to get enlightened by the Word of God and intelligent preaching of the gospel, he sees that he's over here, doesn't he? All right, when he gets any sense, he wants to get over here. But you can't get from here to there by force of resolution. The only one way you can get from here to there, and that's repent of your sins and come to the cross of Jesus for forgiveness and transformation, then this becomes as natural to you as this was over here. Is that right? Can I get a weak Presbyterian amen out of you? <laughs> That's the way God governs it. But now, there's no cause and effect here whatsoever. It can't be if it's free. So, can you read what's up there at the top on the right, those words outside the triangle? Ah, now you're getting the moral government. Not physical government. The truth of the blessed gospel. To show us how stupid we've been in our sins. How unlogical, illogical unreasonable, unphilosophical, that sin is. And say, why in heaven's name did I ever do such stupid things as that? I've hurt God, I've hurt my parents, I've hurt everybody else, I've even hurt myself. God just says, yeah, why have you? Why have you? So the truth of the blessed Bible, the love of Christ on Calvary's cross, you know, dear friends, I spoke to you a little bit last night about rehabilitation and habilitation. That's true. Reformatories and penitentiaries, they don't rehabilitate. Now, I'm going to tell you the main reason they don't. Not only because they weren't habilitated when they were young by the parents or the schools. It's because there's no penitentiary, no penal institution, not even hell itself will subdue the rebellious heart. Only the love of Christ on Calvary, when made real to the human heart, can make sin to be a very obnoxious thing. Isn't that right? Look what we've got the answers for this world. The penitentiaries can't do it. The hospitals, the shrinks can't do it. Bless God, we've got the answers right here in the blessed gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, you get the truth and the love of Christ. Now, here's where you and I come in. The persuasion of preaching and teaching and pleading with people. I don't think I'd have been a Christian if it hadn't been for my dear precious mother who only had an eighth grade education. But she had the glory of God in her soul and she had understanding. Did you get that? She didn't have much knowledge, but she sure had plenty of understanding. And that's what I needed. Friends, you don't need to be a college graduate to preach the gospel and maybe you're better off without that. Most college graduates I know need the gospel preached to them. <laughs> And they have trouble understanding it because they're not used to studying anything. It's difficult. They want it by rote or memorization. Now, look at the next one. Influence. Ah, influence from two different places. The blessed Holy Ghost of God. How about Christian influence? I worked with some fellows in my early days of engineering. My, they lived godly lives. They lived godly lives. Boy, oh boy, I couldn't get away from it. They never told dirty stories. They wouldn't even use half oaths like, my God, or OG. No. Well, they were very careful, and I noticed that. I noticed. And I knew, and I noticed when other people did things to them, they didn't fight back. They didn't have vindictive spirits. You see what I'm saying? They had that spirit of Christ about them. And I want to tell you something, dear friends. That was some evidence that I couldn't get away from. 
And when I began to use my head, I didn't want to get away from it. Some of those guys couldn't preach a lick, but they could sure do a heap of living. And if we can't do the heap of living, we might as well not preach anyway. Isn't that right? So, here, this is the natural law of consequences. And I wish I had a pointer up there. I would say, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he reap. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he reap. Now, which do you want out of life? It's according to what you sow. You're going to get it. Now, my dear friends, let me show you the, the importance of that. Now, I have a piece of that paper which has this chart on it. Yeah, here. Let's hand it out to you. Dear friends, I have helped a lot of men get out of penal institutions. And I don't mean over the wall. <laughs> Although Joliet State Penitentiary in Illinois, they had a track team, but they had disbanded because all they wanted to be was pole ballers. <laughs> You explain that one to him later. <laughs> I've gotten lots of men out of penitentiaries. I had a black preacher come to me one day, and he said, Brother Khan, you believe in being merciful? I said, what a question. What a question. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I'm going to need mercy in front of God. And my dear friends, there's two traits you never find missing in Christians. They're givers and they're forgivers. And there I... We're too weak to carry grudges. We don't fight back. Now, I'd get a lot of these men out on Monday, and the next Monday they'd be right back in. And when the next Monday, it'd be within a month. I got one black lad out, but he stayed out. I led him to Christ about three or four months later. He gave us ten years of the most wonderful work life you could ever imagine. But I wish I could stop there talking about Jim Box. Because almost all of them after that, they were the exact opposite of this black lad. I got Jim out. He'd made parole three years but couldn't, couldn't get out in Indiana, Illinois. They will not parole you if you don't have a job to go to. Well, it's pretty hard to get a man a job. It's still in the cold storage, you know. <laughs> so I said, would you have mercy upon him? I said, I sure will. And tell me about him. He said, then he told me about him, how he killed somebody when he was 16 in a fight on a Saturday night. But I remember when I was 16, I knew some guys I would have killed if I could have. <laughs> it wasn't that my heart was better than Jim's. So I signed to get him out. Man, he was just a tremendous fellow. So appreciative. To this day, we're good friends. But I got so many out, that within a month they'd be right back in. So I called the vice president, I call him the vice president of poor relations. It's industrial relations, you know, but I always call it poor relations. Called him more one day, and I said, now, John, and he's a, a marvelous Christian man. He was a rank heathen when he came there, but he's a marvelous Christian man today. I said, now, John, I will keep on signing to get the guys out, providing you show this to them and say, now, if you come to work for Whitney, you're going to have a station in Harry Kahn's office that may last for two, three, four hours. And he's going to teach you while it's on this piece of paper. And if you rebel against him teaching you this, you better stay right where you're at. Because he's not going to sign to get you out. 
So, naturally, they'd agree to that, you know, to get out of the place, not really realizing what they're heading for. <laughs> so, here was a man, a white man, came into my office one day. He had spent 18 of the last 20 years in state penitentiaries from California to Illinois. So I set him down, and I had a big ledger paper of accounting like this, and I drew this on there for him. And I said, now, you've been in a lot of times. And I said to him, after I get done with you here, I said, if you get back in the penitentiary, you're going to have to crawl over your intelligence to get over that wall. You may have been stupid before, but now you're going to be sinning against light. So I began to draw this thing, and I drew it. Just the way you see it right there, and the top word on the left there under penalties was guilt. And he said to me, he said, Mr. Kahn, I know this is correct, what you're saying. He said, I spent 18 of the last 20 years in state penitentiaries. And when I was out the last time here in Rockford, I was here 125 days, and I spent 124 nights sitting on a bar stool. I said, for goodness sakes. There's a little bit of theological research to tell me why would anyone want to throw their life away sitting on a bar stool. See, in New York City, we used to call bars upholstered sewers. And that was a very polite name. Tell me. Now, I said, you don't have to. I'm not your father confessor, but I'd appreciate if you did. He put his finger over there and that word guilt, and he began to sob. He began to cry. And I want to tell you, men and women, if you'd seen this fella, you could tell at one time he'd been a very, very handsome man. But now he looked as hard as a piece of Vermont granite. But the tears began to come down his face. He was, he was sobbing. He could no more reason. He couldn't talk. So I just sat there beside him. I didn't say anything. I just let him have his cry out. Here's the hardness, most hardened criminal I'd ever met. And I preached in lots of jails, lots of federal penitentiaries. And I know my way around with those people in those kind of places. I love to preach in penitentiaries because you don't have to spend half the time getting in their fat heads or sinners. <laughs> they got a head start on the people in churches, you know what I mean? And no more sinners than they are usually, but they got it in their head they are. So he sobbed this. I, I don't know, friends, whether it's five minutes or 20 minutes. I just sat there. As he began to cool down, I said, no, brother, you don't have to. You want to tell me about it? I said, yeah. He said, Mr. Kahn, that one right there, and he put his finger on guilt, and then he began to weep again. He said, 20 years ago, I walked away from a very fine wife, a good woman. I abandoned her and my, I forget now whether it was three or four children. He says, I magnanimously gave her $200 to raise my children on, and I disappeared. Now, the liberal state of, of California never arrested him for desertion or abandonment, which they should have done. If they'd have given him five years in jail, he might have got out of his system. But no, they never did anything. So he said, Mr. Khan, I would go in the taverns at night to drink to drown my guilt. I'd spend all my money. And he says, then I'd go out and break an inner or strong arm and purse snatch or beat somebody up and take, I'd get caught. Bang, I'm right back in. 18 out of 20. I said, by the way, when you drink all that like that at night, would the guilt be gone in the morning? He said, no, it was bigger. It was bigger. Now, my question to you, my dear friends, is this. The state of California never arrested him, never sanctioned their laws. 
But I ask you a question. Did that man whose name was Dewey Moore, did he get away with abandoning that good woman? Did he get away with that? I should say he didn't. He paid a frightful price for that, didn't he? Well, in 1968, dear friends, the day that Martin, the day after Martin Luther King was assassinated, my daughter, my wife, my two daughters, and a little neighbor girl were going to drive to Florida to visit my godly in-laws. He's a dear old Quaker man. He was a real Quaker, a Quaker that had quaked. <laughs> That's what that thing meant. They used to sit and tremble in the presence of the Lord. That's where you get the word Quaker from. They had quaked. Somebody asked me one time, I was offered a job by Richard Nixon to be on his staff, and they said, well, what do you think about him? Well, after listening to him talk, I just said, well, he's a Quaker, it never quaked. <laughs> and I just let it go with that. I think you know what I mean by it now. He's a Quaker, it never quaked. I'm having breakfast, all this cursing and swearing going on, I felt like I was working in a junkyard. <laughs> you know, although I've known more cultured people in junkyards than he had in the White House. You know a lot about them now. Well... When you look at it like this, my dear friends, my daughters, my wife started driving to Florida. I walked in the house. I couldn't go. I had a lot of problems in business. Now, there's something going on in our house you almost never hear. Almost never. I've never heard it since. You know what it was? A loud radio. We don't have loud music in our house. We're not trying to escape from anything. But most people got to have this on, that on to escape from themselves. You know, those people are so miserable that when they go on a vacation, they take themselves with them. <laughs> and they're just as miserable out there as they are here. Well, you wouldn't almost never hear that. But this time, the radio was kind of loud, and I hear that there were race riots in Chicago and Indianapolis and Louisville and Baltimore and Atlanta. My wife and daughter said, to drive to these. And they'd already gone. So I began to pray. And I got down. And I prayed for the safe journey. But then, dear friends, I began to pray for my black brothers and sisters. I said, oh, God, I would that you'd let me be able to put this every 50 miles in the United States. So you couldn't go 50 miles in any direction without seeing it. About 25 to 50 miles high in the sky with words big enough up there that everyone can read them. As I said, my black brothers are burning down these cities. They're not going to get arrested tonight, but they're not going to get away with it. You see, my dear friends, you are what you've been through. You are what you've been through. Maybe you didn't get caught, but there's coming. So I'm really praying, praying for my black brothers. And I'm praying about, oh God, I would that you'd allow me to teach this to you. Oh, God, uh, suppress them tonight from hurting one another and hurting the whites and the whites hurting them and burning down. Dear friends, within less than 24 hours of time, I was praying. A car on the west side of Chicago, a four-door car, the windows down, was coming out this well-traveled street. There were 30 people on this street corner. Now, if you ever get in an area where there's a race riot, there's only one thing to do. That's get out of there. Just get out. So here's 30 whites and blacks all standing around, huddled together, waiting for the bus to come so they can get out of that neighborhood. Here came this four-door car down there, and there's a teenager in the back and a couple in the front, but the teenager in the back has got a rifle that's loaded, and he knows it's loaded. Now, do you think he knew he should keep that under control? Of course. Every man that picks up a gun ought to know he's responsible to God to keep that gun under control. 
Just like if I was a judge and you got drunk and you run in and kill two or three people and you come up in front of me and you said, Mr. Khan, I, it's true, I killed him, but have mercy, I was drunk. I say, that means nothing to me. I hold you accountable for the antecedent choice of having thrown away control of your faculties. And that's the way it is with a just God. Drunk driving will never, never be an excuse for anything or drunkenness for anything. Because God holds us accountable to keep our faculties in control. Now, as they went by this street corner, this black lad, a teenager, he just plunked that gun into the middle of that crowd and he pulled the trigger. He shot a 10-year-old black girl right through the head. She dropped dead. You know who it was? His own sister. His own sister. Now, that black lad, he was never arrested for that. I want to ask you a question. Do you think he got away with it? Let me tell you what it was. Ten, within ten days, he was a stark, raven, screaming, psychotic maniac in Dunning State Hospital. And by the way, not long after that, I come in from Oklahoma City. And my wife, is when we're gone, for some reason or other, she saves all the old papers. I don't know why. She'll sit around reading a week old newspaper. I say, it ain't news anymore, honey. It's a week old. <laughs> it's like a weekly newspaper. You ever heard of a weekly newspaper? We got one that was in my hometown. I tell them how to put an A in there. Weekly, you know. <laughs> if you've had it a week, it isn't news. So, so I get home. I've been, I've been lecturing in Oklahoma City. And I'm sitting there reading a the paper. And, uh, and I'm reading about my black friend, Charles Joseph. Teaches fast-track English at Guilford High School. Worked for me in the summertime as a writer. Precious guy. Lovely black wife. Both graduates of a fine liberal arts college in Dallas. I read where he put an ad in the newspaper. He said he wanted an apartment on the northeast side. He was teaching at Guilford High School, going to. That's where my daughters went. It's the nicest part of town. He's the best English teacher in town, so he used to teach that. He wanted to live close to where he's teaching. Get this now, friends. He got 100 answers to his ad. He called them up, 99 of them. said, can I come and look at the apartment? They said, oh, yeah. He said, well, there's something I better tell you. What's that? They said, my wife and I are black. Will that make any difference? They'd say, yes, and hang up. He finally went to the 100th one. And he looked at this place, and it was a pigsty. His wife, Linda's too nice to ever put her in a dump like that. And the man said, well, you can rent this. He said, no, no. He said, I thank you for your kindness, and you're going to rent to me. But no, I don't want And then this white owner, he said something very unkind to him. I won't repeat it here, but you'd know the word. As I read that, I wanted to cry. The next morning, I spoke in the Presbyterian church in our town. And I handed these out, had them hand to everyone here in the church. And I said, I want to tell you, dear friends, this is the way God governs you. And if you're too good to live beside a black, you're too good for God's heaven. You ain't going to make it. You ain't going to make it. Because to love your fellow man means that you don't think you're more important than he is. That's why. Jesus said, you come after me and you don't think less for your father and mother, yea, and your own life also, and come after me. That means you put me in the supreme place, but put them where they belong, see, 
Well, where everyone belongs is on the same, same level with us. That's where they belong. On the same level. Now, I said to them, now, if you will not rent to your black brother, if you will not let them live beside you, fact is, we had a neighbor, a very liberal neighbor, so I went over to him before we moved to where we moved now, 18 years ago, had his house for sale. I said to him, I said, Don, I said, Don, you got your house for sale, but I want you to know, if you sell it to a black brother, that'll be fine with me. He said, well, Harry, don't you know what that'll do to your, to the value of your property? I said, of course I know what it'll do. It'll go down. He said, well, uh, why are you saying that? I said, that's a part of being a Christian. God told me to count the cost beforehand. There's going to be cost down the line. And if it's going to cost me to let a black brother live beside me, that's all right. That's all. Say, listen, if we don't get practical with our religion, it isn't worth a nickel. Amen. It isn't worth a nickel. Amen. Well, I held this up and I had held and I said, now I want you people to look at this. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he reap. Now, a lot of people have had their properties burned down in big cities. You know why? They were reaping the consequences of not loving their fellow man. Now, that doesn't give them the right to burn it down. 